Hello, and welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media, where we discuss the work of the great science fiction writer Gene Wolfe, one story at a time. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. This episode, we're talking about the short story, Slaves of Silver, originally published in Galaxy in 1971. And reprinted in the story collection, Stories from the Old Hotel. Before we jump into this a little bit more, I do want to tell our listeners that they should absolutely check out your novella by G.L. McDorman, uh, Glenn's pen name. <laughs> uh, it's called Equality of Mercy. Now It's now in print. It's previously been e-published. Uh, Equality of Mercy is a, a really great story featuring the world-weary private eye Henslow as he works to get his friend out of a jam in the mysterious underworld of Alden. I love this story, Glenn, and I just really hope our listeners check it out. Yeah, thanks for that, Brandon. And this we should say, is a sequel to the story, Goodbye to All That, which uh, was published by the Tales to Terrify podcast a few months ago, which we told listeners about. And uh, as you say, these stories of Paul Henslow are uh, kind of a mix of the classic hard-boiled detective with Lovecraftian horror. And in the story that we're covering today, Wolf has given us uh, a sort of a mix of detective fiction with science fiction here in a story about Sherlock Holmes and robots, which is just delightful. Yeah, this is a really excellent pastiche of the kind of Holmesian detective story in a world where robots are the norm. There's just a lot of wonderful world building elements in this story. I can't wait to really get into it. Well, let's not wait. Let's just get into it. Brandon, why don't you uh, take us through the plot of Slaves of Silver? Happily. Well, I can't think of a better way to introduce the narrator of Slaves of Silver than by using Wolf's own opening paragraph. He delivers a lot of crucial details in the introduction to this story, and so I'm just going to read it aloud. Wolf writes this. The day I formed my connection with March B Street has remained extraordinarily well fixed in my memory. This shows, of course, that my unconscious... My monitor, I should say. You must pardon me if I sometimes slip into these anthropomorphic terms. It's the influence of my profession. What was I saying? Oh, yes, my monitor, which of course sorts through my stored data during maintenance periods and wipes the obsolete material out of core. Regards the connection quite important. A tenuous connection, you will say, yes, but it has endured. Yeah, this is a really brilliant opening. I think this is actually a vast improvement on the the opening of the first Sherlock Holmes story, A Study in Scarlet, where we're just going to get straight into it. And again, Wolf here, as he so often is, almost always is, is just masterfully letting us know what's going on without having to actually say it, right? We know that this narrator is mechanical, a computer of some sort. I don't think we quite yet grasp that this is a robot, though uh, people who've been reading along with us or people who have read the stories that Gene Wolfe has written previous to this, people who read IBEM in particular, will note that there is something very similar going on with memory banks here, or robotic memory, as there was in IBEM. Yeah, it's another evolution of Wolfe's robots and robotics, and, and this is more the world that is recognizable much later in Wolf's fiction, and it's all here in this introduction. Well, the narrator, who is still unnamed, informs the reader, there's some fourth wall breaking going on here, that it was a late hour and rainy, and that he had finished his house calls for the day. What's funny, I kind of peeked ahead to the sequel to this story, and it begins with, it was a dark and stormy night, which is exactly how this story (laughs) begins. I just thought that was really funny. Rather than heading straight home, the narrator decides to buy a newspaper and read it while waiting for the train, the mono. 
He flips over to the real estate ads and finds a room for rent. It interests him as his rooms that he's renting were less than satisfactory. The ad reads thus, single professional wishes to share apartment, expanded closet, quiet habits, no entertaining, credits eight a month. This price is less than our narrator is paying, and it's more convenient in many regards. The location is more convenient than where he was currently living. So our narrator boards the train, and he gets off at the cathedral stop. From the exterior, the building is old and small. Still, he travels up to the 27th floor and enters in what used to be just a single apartment. But thanks to a technology, it's currently unexplained, we'll get to it real soon, called space expanders or just expanders, this one single apartment has become a complex of living quarters. There's a landlady in this complex, and she gives the narrator a hard time. We learned something about her. We learned that she's a declassed human. And she has a kind of a natural prejudice against robots. And, and as, as this kind of comes out in the story, there's some real tension between these declassed humans and robots in the society. But also what's interesting is that the narrator had assumed that this ad was placed by another robot, thinking that the term single professional gave away the fact that this is a robot renting this space. And so he's surprised to learn that the ad was placed by a human. In the section, we also learn that the narrator is a biomechanic, a profession that has replaced doctors, and that March B. Street, the Sherlock Holmes stand-in, is a consulting engineer and detective. Yeah, March B. Street is the fantasy, the Sherlock Holmesian alter ego of Gene Wolfe, right? He has to put the engineer in there. This was absolutely delightful to encounter. There's some really impressive, as I know we are always saying this, but there's some just really impressive world building that happens just in the sort of first page and a half of this story. We've talked about a little bit of it already, but without any real attention being called to it, we get told that we are li- that this story is taking place in a dense but old urban environment. We get this 27-story building, as you mentioned, Brandon, but we learn that it's also blackened with age. We also know that there is advanced technology. There's robots and there's mind-boggling space expanders that are sort of messing with space-time, and we'll find out more about those later. That is a real interesting juxtaposition, this advanced technology with this aged and maybe even almost decaying urban environment, and and then coupled even as well with this clear indication that there are at least some types of humans who are less than, who are no longer classed, but are declassed, while there's also the assumption that if someone is a professional, that person is a robot. So it is a it is a world of dichotomies and strange juxtapositions. Yeah, absolutely, which is, you know, kind of industrial uh, Victorian England as well, as, as we're getting all these new technologies and, and a fascination with older technologies uh, that existed before and the past. This is all encapsulated in Wolf's imaginary future or imaginary Victorian England. Yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. Let's uh, let's keep going with it. So the narrator enters the rooms, which, as we found out in the ad, were just an expanded coat closet. And here we learn something about the expanders. Somehow they create additional space by borrowing space from outer space and placing it in locations where it's needed. It's a bizarre technology, and I think it lends itself to some great background 
horror in the story as well. Yeah, I guess it's sort of creating something like a like a pocket dimension, and that's how it makes the room larger. And Wolf uses a really awesome phrase here that I think is pretty horrific, or at least has a little bit of an undertone of, of the cosmic horror genre, when he says that what they do is they move the space between the galaxies. So it's not even like outer space in our solar system or space between our solar system and another. It's between the galaxies. So it really is drawing on the unimaginable, the incomprehensible immensity and blackness of space. Yeah, I love this technology. The narrator and Street make their introductions, and we learn that the narrator's name is Westing, after the old Westinghouse. Um, It's an old-fashioned name, we learn. And he is delighted, Westing is delighted to hear that Street prefers a robot to a human as a roommate. Street tells Westing about himself, about Westing, by deducing facts about him in a classic Holmesian fashion. And Westing senses here that there's something medically odd about Street that he can't quite put a finger on. The two talk for a little while, and Westing wants to take a moment to think before deciding whether or not he wants to actually live with Street. And here's why. Street himself is a D-classed human, which would, perhaps, we learn, negatively impact Westing's reputation. But Westing is ready for a change. He wants to show his friends up, who wouldn't believe he'd ever live with a D-class human. Plus, there's an awful lot of space in this expanded closet. One thing we should say now that we have our narrator's name, Westing, of course, sounds like Dr. Watson, who is the narrator of the Sherlock Holmes stories, and the uh, March B Street, Street as we're just going to call him in the narrative, the B Street obviously is Baker Street, which is of course uh, 221B Baker Street, which is where Watson and Holmes live. It's sort of their base of operations in your classic Sherlock story. So there is, uh, there's no mistaking who these characters are actually meant to be. But in fact, it was so obvious that we neglected to say anything about it at the top of the story. <laughs> right, right. It's better once you get Westing's name. It kind of fits the pace of the story a little bit as well. Well, while Westing is sitting and thinking his decision over, Street declares that they have a visitor. Westing is concerned that someone else wants to look at the apartment. But Street is certain that they are here for another reason. Street, of course, is proven immediately right. The person at the door is none other than Commissioner Electric. (laughs) Well, Street knows who the man is. He's a robot um, before the man can even introduce himself. And and Street knows this because he keeps track of everyone that comes to the building that he does not know already. Three months ago, Commissioner Electric came to request funds to add space expanders to the hiring hall. Commissioner Electric is in charge of the hiring hall. And and the hiring hall is the place where robots who have no work go to to be deactivated until they can be used by society again. The expansion has been a huge success as the hall was previously just overcrowded with robots out of work. But a new problem has arisen. A problem that only March B. Street can solve. One of the things that we've been able to glean from this story so far, Brandon, is that robots in this society are capitalist wage earners. 
when Westin is thinking about the social stigma of living with a declassed human. He thinks about how that might financially impact his medical practice. And Street makes some mention of money and how Westin is making a living when they're when he's interviewing him about whether or not he wants him to to, to take him on as a roommate. So we know that robots are wage earners in a sort of capitalist society. But we learn here when Commissioner Electric shows up that they also have even within robot society, there is socioeconomic class. And we get this when Westing looks kind of longingly at Commissioner Electric's polished and lavished solid chrome trim, which gives unmistakable evidence of, if not wealth, then at least of a sufficiency that Westing and millions of others could only envy all of their lives. So it's interesting to, to see that these machines have social class. Yeah, it's great. And I love how millions of others is left kind of vague, whether it's millions of other robots, which is kind of how I read it, or just millions of others. And there's a real non-distinction between, as as we brought up in Wolf many times before, conscious beings. Um, but I think in this instance, Westing is referring to the millions of robots who are just wage earners, and that this person has a highly coveted political position. Yeah, one more thing to say about what we learn here about the robots before we move on is just to really emphasize that these robots do differ from the robots that we had in IBEM. In IBEM, those robots have a type of skin or, or covering that emulates, mimics anyway, human skin. These robots are chrome. And and the more polished and chromey you actually are, the, the better you are, the higher up in, in robot uh, society you are. Commissioner Electric relates the problem to street. Robots are going missing from the hiring hall. And remember, these robots are going there to be deactivated and just to wait for there to be work again. So you might think this isn't a real problem, but this presents a massive societal problem. Because if robots are unwilling to go and turn themselves in when there is no work due to the fact that the hiring hall is an untrustworthy place, they may resort to begging and theft as in the old days. Additionally, Westing adds, Street would also be helping the declassed humans by taking on this mystery of why the robots are going missing. Because declassed humans have to compete with robots for work on the market. And if robots are being used for slave labor, or for whatever nefarious reasons, then humans aren't able to actually to compete for those jobs. It's like a crazy situation. I mean, it's, a, it's a really dark situation. Westing imagines that, that the kidnapped robots are, quote, slaves of silver, toiling in the dark, perhaps in some illegal factory. And there's just some great kind of pulp writing around this. One thing that we learn here is that Commissioner Electric has a brother. He's a robot, but he has a brother. And that brother is a highly placed military officer. So this is not a world state, or at least not a universal state. There is some need for this society to have a military, and that being a military officer is is something that someone in the, the upper classes of robot society would do. And we also learn here a little bit about how this robot society or this these parallel human robot societies came to be. And we learned that there was this old political rallying cry, free markets and free robots. Uh, this is regarded as being kind of quaint by Commissioner Electric. He says it may be a joke now to some, but 
that idea has built our civilization. And if something is unraveling that, such as these thefts, these kidnappings would be, then something has to be done about it. And so the robots doing seemingly all of the work, this is why we have this assumption that a profession, any professional is a robot, that's the free robots part of this old rallying cry. But we also learn here that this society has a lavish universal basic income for humans, while robots do all of the work. They do the labor and they do professional work and they're in the military, but they're doing all of that for pay. So that's the the free market part of it. And humans are expected to end their lives at a certain specific age, and those who don't will lose their basic income. And, and the, this, these are the people then who are called declassed, people who have decided that actually they don't want to kill themselves, but they aren't going to get this universal income anymore. And so they have to find work. And these are the humans then who are competing with robots for work. Yeah, I love this detail. And it really comes up in the closing of this story, though not the closing of the action of this story. And it's just a, an odd feature of the world. And, and something I really love here is that Wolf is asking the question, what happens when our productivity rises? to the point where we no longer really need human labor. He was asking this question as a Republican in the 1970s. People who ask this question today have come up with a completely different answer, or more often they're not even raising the question. But as an engineer and somebody who's interested in robotics, Wolf was perhaps really looking forward to a future, like the Jetsons future, where humans can be at leisure finally. It's wonderful stuff. Yeah, I mean, there's a little fantasy going on here, right? Wolf would probably like to be a consulting engineer and detective, uh, not have to worry about about his income because robots are doing all of the real work. Yeah, I think, I mean, yes, (laughs) that would be a great job for any of us. (laughs) Um, Well, this wouldn't be a story if Street didn't take the case. So he does, and he invites Westing to join him on his little adventure. Commissioner Electric leaves, and the two men follow after him in pursuit. The plan is to meet Electric at the hall so that they can get a private tour, but Street wants to confirm that Commissioner Electric is on the up and up. Street and Westing wait outside the hiring hall after following Commissioner Electric there, and idle near a display of Tri-Ds, which is something we haven't brought up before, but this is a major technology in the story. And and from my reading, Tri-Ds are like a three-dimensional TV display that may also do a lot of other stuff. (laughs) Yeah, in my mind, I just was reading it as TV. Yeah, exactly. But it's maybe the, the way we watch TV today, which is on the internet, and there's like, you know, a lot of access to the to the whole world through it. Well, after waiting a little while, the two enter the hall. Street takes down notes like a classic investigation of how many robots have gone missing. And also, he notes the fact that they all go missing at night. Well, before we leave the hiring hall, I just want to point out one thing that I think is really interesting and and really significant in Westing's narrative. He describes the hall this. He says, the corridors were lined with persons of every age and state of repair. And when he says persons, he means robots. But I think it's important to note that Westing doesn't use that word and doesn't describe them as machines. They're, they're, they're just persons. That's why I think kind of Westing sees everything in terms of robots in this world. The people he doesn't even really name. He's a, he's a biomechanic. So his whole world is really made up by the robots that exist in the world, not really by the humans. Well, as you said, Glenn, um, we are going to leave the hiring hall 
And so Street and Westing do leave, and they pass the Tri-D display once again. And Street says this as they're passing the display. Westing, this thing is as simple as a two-foot piece of aluminum conduit that I'm confident I know everything about except what I need to know. And I have no idea how I'm going to find the answer. I know how the robots are taken, I think. And I believe I know why. The question is, who is responsible? And after this kind of exclamation, Westing and Street return to the apartment in silence. When they get back to the apartment, Westing realizes that he has not ended his lease at his last place, and he hasn't moved into Street's place, so he excuses himself to take care of that business. You know, this is really just a section about the passage of time. The Westing returns after doing all this work, and he sits in silence as Street stews in his own gloom. Um, And the word gloom is brought up here, which I really appreciate, because this speaks to maybe the cosmic horror roots of this story. Westing decides that it's time for him to impose some professional medical advice on street. He himself makes some deductions. He deduces that it has been a long time since street has had his last fix of whatever drug it is that keeps him functioning. And Street agrees to this, except that he says he doesn't use drugs. Westing suggests then, in that case, that Street should begin using drugs because society is too complex for humans to remain sane in without the use of pharmaceutical relief. And I, and I love this. This is what I'm talking about with the cosmic horror roots. I imagine that these space expanders have brought some real incomprehensible horrors to humans, and that the only way they can engage with this new reality is by taking some kind of drug to stay sane. I think it's actually much simpler than that. Wolf is appropriating some evolutionary psychology here, right? The line that we actually get, Westing says he was taught at medical school that human beings, being after all a species evolved for a savanna landscape rather than our climax civilization, were unable to maintain their sanity without pharmaceutical relief. So this is really just about humans living in in cities rather than living out in the savanna landscape. This is about humans not hunting their own food, not living in sort of small mobile bands of of hunter-gatherers. It is about not so much that space expanders necessarily are evil, but that the way that we live our lives now, the way that people were living their lives when Wolf wrote this story is antithetical to our own evolutionary psychology. Oh, that's interesting. So I really read it as if the space expanders themselves messed with reality or space-time in such a way that people couldn't encounter it in the same way that in your classic uh, cosmic horror story uh, th- that your your human being cannot encounter the reality of the philosophy of the cosmic universe, that bringing this space into a new place presents them with a concept that they're unable to live with without pharmaceutical relief. There is something of cosmic horror to the very fact that we do, through our own ingenuity and cleverness and perhaps greed, create a civilization that is antithetical to our very nature, such that we actually need to medicate ourselves against our own creations. Right. It's it's great. I really love this feature of the story. But Street doesn't need these drugs. He's just, I don't know, that intelligent, I suppose, that aware. So... Street actually just refuses Westing's aid, and he explains to Westing that thought is his drug. 
Westing remarks that thought might end up being the source of Street's own undoing. And he gives Street an example of how just that day, as they were standing outside the Tri-D display, Street was so caught up with his own thoughts that he failed to notice the changing hues of colors on the store Tri-D display. The colors, were told, cycled from reddish-orange to greenish-blue to really blue to bright, cool green. And this is not the first time we'll see shifting hues in a monitor being significant in a wolf store. Yeah, but it's extraordinarily dramatic when we encounter it here. The plot is really thickening at this point. At Westing's description of these changing hues, Street stops in his tracks. He repeats to Westing exactly what he said. I read, I read, I read this section before as they were leaving the hall, standing in front of the Tri-D display, and asks that Westing tell him exactly at what word the colors changed hue. Westing obliges Street. Then Street asks Westing, after this happens, to examine his art collection and point out precisely which colors were present on the screen. And Westing does this. And as soon as all of the colors are identified, Street goes to work examining his old books and color charts. There's an absolutely wonderful detail here where one of the images in Street's pictures that he uses as a sort of color chart is this painting called Susanna and the Elders. Susanna and the Elders is the name of a biblical story. There are a lot of Uh, Renaissance paintings, a lot of early modern paintings of this story. Uh, The most famous is probably a Rembrandt painting, and this is actually the one that I think probably most closely resembles the color scheme that Wolf describes it as having. So I think that's the one he had in mind here. And this painting depicts the story of Susanna, which is found in chapter 13 of the book of Daniel. And this is interesting for two reasons. Uh, First, Chapter 13 is considered apocryphal by Protestants, though it's considered scripture by Catholics and by Orthodox Christians. But second, it is essentially a detective story, and perhaps the only detective story in the Bible. The story is this. Some men attempt to force Susanna to have sex with her, and when she refuses, they accuse her of promiscuity, which is a punishable crime. And at her trial, just as she is about to be wrongly convicted and executed, Daniel arrives and interrupts the whole affair. And he separates the two accusers and then interrogates them uh, individually and shows that their story doesn't hold up by picking out a particular detail that they don't agree on. One of them says that they caught Susanna under a mastic tree, while the other says it was an oak tree. And this all hinges on the fact that these two trees are so different that the one couldn't possibly be mistaken for the other. And so these stories have clearly been invented. And Daniel then solves this crime by treating it as a sort of logic puzzle to be figured out, just like a Sherlock Holmes story. Yeah, that's wonderful. <laughs> and also, I mean, you mentioned that uh, the Susanna and the Elders painting was probably a, a Rembrandt. In Westing's mind, this is an execrable depiction of this. And so it's just it's just hilarious that our old master here, Rembrandt, is in, in the robot's mind, uh, perhaps because there are no robots in the painting <laughs> itself, <laughs> is, is a 
really disgusting depiction of this. Yeah, it's true. It's true. There's, I mean, there's so much to love about this, about this little detail. One of the things, of course, that I love most is that I think here is another instance of, of Wolf sort of placing himself into this continuum of not just writers, but of readers, where he's linking himself with the long chain of both writers and readers of detective fiction all the way back to antiquity. And this, of course, is something I always love about Wolf. Wolf as someone who thinks of himself as a reader as much as uh, a writer. Yeah, and we last saw him do this kind of masterfully in The Island of Dr. Death and other stories. While his street is examining his dusty volumes and color charts and other charts, I suppose, Westing falls asleep, which means he's editing his memory banks, and Street shakes him awake. He has solved the case. Street asks Westing if Westing knows how he is programmed to speak, and Westing gives an incorrect answer, and so Street corrects him, giving him a brief lesson in English phonemes. He tells Westing that there are only 60 phonemes in the English language, and Westing has them all in his processing unit in a 60-place linear array. He goes on to explain that he was able to match those phonemes to a color chart, and that the shifting colors Westing saw on the Tri-D display created the letters P, H, E, and L. And if these letters were in the middle of a certain kind of sequence, a repeating sequence, Westing deduces that someone is crying out for help. Yeah, not fell. <laughs> no, they're not, they're not trying to get fell, uh, whatever that could mean. One of the things that's really fun here in this episode is that when Westing learns how his language function operates, he says... I'm not a religious man, but when I contemplate the ingenuity of those early programmers and systems analysts, and then he just drifts off. He can't even finish that sentence. He's so it's an ecstasy, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah, a religious ecstasy. Right, I think, right, right. It's, it's so great. It's phenomenal. Well, Street communicates to Westing that he has devised a plan that proves the solution to this mystery. What he does is he call, he calls the clerk at the Tri-D store where the display unit was and the clerk is a robot and there's some funny business more about robots and d-classed humans here and their conflict but eventually street asks to view a program uh, through his own display called the answer man and these displays will be linked so that street will see whatever is at the display unit on his own tri d display at home so Street asks the answer man a question about his old family servitor who is currently deactivated at the hiring hall. And he wants to know if this unit is safe, basically. The colors shift, the hues shift, as the answer man gives, I don't know, whatever answer he gives. And th this Shifting of the colors alerts the clerk to a problem with the display unit. And Street is forced to give an explanation to the clerk about sunspots affecting the color displays. And so he ends the call. And somehow we're, we're, we're given to believe that this has proven Street's case. What we learn is that Street has memorized his letter to color chart. And he immediately understood the language that the Tri-D display communicated in. And Street learns that the Tri-D 
has communicated the word dread. These colors, Street describes, are as having a startling beauty. And now that Street has his proof, he explains the mystery to Westing. Yeah, the startling beauty of dread. That, that, that again, here is some of this cosmic horror undertone that we're getting. So the mystery unravels. <laughs> thieves have been hiding in the hall after closing. The thieves take robots and they place them in the places that have been expanded by the space expanders. When the thieves turn off the expanders, the robots are dumped into, as you said, Glenn, the space between the galaxies, where the expanders pull in that extra space from. At that point, as they're floating in deep space, a deep space freighter picks up the robots and returns them to Earth, where the inner electronic workings of these robots, these conscious beings, as Westing would would really see them as, are used to make consumer electronics like the Tri-D. And at least one of the robot's central processors had been used to build a Tri-D. And from all this information, Westing surmises that the criminals had wired the speech centers of a robot that had been kidnapped to handle the color coding. And this is why the Tri-D was able to communicate using color. Westing is thrilled by his own deduction and by Street's work contributing to greater justice and glory that would be Street's, that would be reflected on him as a companion of this person. This solves his earlier conflict about losing status with his friends. It's, it's a wonderful closing of the loop. Yeah, precisely like Dr. Watson, he is going to become famous as the chronicler of the adventures of March B. Street, consulting engineer and detective. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Westing interrupts his own celebration at this point to remind Street that he has done a great service. I mean, Westing is just in awe at this point. But Street is really only interested in buying an old claw machine like you'd find at a friendly's <laughs> from a junk shop with his fee, with his fee uh, money. But Westing really understands that Street could demand more than his fee from solving this mystery. He could be reclassed and begin drawing from his income once more. But Street explains to Westing that he has not been declassed due to criminal behavior or from a desire to escape old age and death. Rather, he has a sexually reproduced he has cloned himself, and that the classification and its income by law and, and the benefits of those things will go to the child. But Westing's real fear here is that because Street has made all this money, he will no longer need a roommate. And also, Street has made some real noise about being private, and he loves his being preoccupied and he, he wants to be able to go to a place where he can just lock the door and be the master of his environment yeah this, this right this is why he didn't if he wanted a child he didn't just get a wife and sexually reproduce is because who wants a wife telling him what to do and what his business is and bothering him all the time right instead he can just get a clone send them to school and never have to see them or deal with them and they'll have his exact life but maybe better it's a weird implication i mean it's very weird um so westing has a little bit of fear around around Street's temperament, his personality, who he is, 
the decisions he makes, and mostly that he will be out of housing entirely because he's already ended his lease at his last place. (laughs) But Street reassures Westing that he's fine. He's fine with Westing staying with him. And, And he says this to end the story. You, Westing, he says, you're no more in the way than a refrigerator. And that's the end of the story. Yes, what an interesting last line. I think we're, we're going to be talking about this line and, and, and also this cloning in the discussion here. Great. Well, let's just go ahead and jump straight into the discussion. So I have two broad categories for us to talk about in this story. The first is the one I think we'll spend the most time on, and it's uh, robots, slavery, and society. So really kind of the, the world building, which we've already commented on uh, quite a bit. And then the other thing is the craft, which I I think we both really loved this story, really admired this story. And I think it will be fun to look at how this story functions and and really try to figure out what it is that we loved so much about it. But let's start by looking broadly at how this society functions, really looking at the world that Wolf has built for us here. There are three categories of people in this story. There are humans who live off an ample universal income. Uh, There are some humans who no longer receive that universal income, and then there are robots who perform all the work, both labor work and and technical professions. But then we see that robots have a society of their own, complete with class distinctions that are very much like our American distinctions based on salary and wealth, or based perhaps on the late Victorian and Edwardian class distinctions of a Sherlock Holmes story as well. And so all of this raises some questions for me, Brandon. Uh, And the first is that although we don't see many humans in this story, what do you think they are doing with their abundance of time and money, besides being consulting engineers and detectives? That's a great question. I think the last time we really saw robots come into play in society was in IBEM. And what we learned in that story was that robots had taken over the tending of nature, and they'd taken over the custody of the natural world to allow humans to live freely in vast, sprawling cities. Something like that is going on in this story as well. The humans, I think, are living primarily in these huge cities that are so densely populated that they require these space expanders, this import of extra space to live in desirable locations. I don't know what kind of activities the humans are getting up to, but it's not interesting from a storytelling standpoint (laughs) because if it were, they'd be a part of this story. What's interesting is the, the working class, the proletariat, and the people who have given up their civil rights as humans to live freely as human. The landlady, we're told, is a woman who has given up her income in order, and I guess she's bought this one apartment (laughs) complex, um, this single apartment that has many space expanders in it, uh, and that's the root of her income. But she is old. She should have died, and she didn't want to die. And now her life is made up of being a busybody and and prejudicial against robots. March B. Street is a D-class human. He gave up his money to make a clone of himself, which is odd. It's It's like narcissism. I'm not really sure what to make of this. But the point is he passed all of his income onto that being, but he still makes enough money as a consulting engineer and detective that he can afford three space expanders. He lives inside of a, of like a coat closet, 
right? And so this is like a huge space. But I think the rest of human society is engaged in meaningless activities, at least in terms of the classic ways that we as people derive meaning from our lives, which is from labor primarily. You bring up some really interesting points here, Brandon. So first thing I'd want to address here is the crowding of the city. We are told and we are shown a city that is crowded, that is is densely packed with persons, and that there is something of a competitive real estate market. And this is interesting, I think, in, in two ways. One, this is happening even with the technology of the space expander. Space really ought not to be at a premium here with these space expanders. We know that they use a lot of energy and that it's they're expensive to turn on. But it is interesting to see that contrast there as well. Yeah, we see a similar technology to great effect in um, Dan Simmons' Hyperion saga. And I think that's what that's what this makes me think of, is that in Hyperion, the similar technology actually does transport you to a different place. It doesn't import the space. It, it creates a portal to it. But I think something very similar is going on here. And we see the, the one character spend all of his wealth on creating a, a mansion of these uh, portals. But I just want to give my evidence also of why the I think the city is densely populated with humans who are receiving the income. It's not just the slums of the world that are the cities. The hiring hall is the place where people go to activate robots who work as domestics. And so my sense is that this is the people who need a place in the city, who have a place in the city, maybe a large place who need a cleaning staff. They just go to the hiring hall and that's how these robots get activated. I think we can also guess that the needs of people who are receiving this income are largely met because so many robots are no longer needed to produce anything at all. So I just think in the background, the classed humans are living, I don't know, the life of the Jetsons, basically. Right. I question whether or not the city is actually crowded with humans. I think the city is crowded with robots. The people who are competing for all of this apartment space here in a coat closet on the 27th floor of this blackened building, this building that's been blackened with age, are the the robots that humans seem to be, classed humans anyway, seem to be living in uh, mansions, expansive places that require domestic servants. You know, we're told we're told in this story that there are more robots who have been deactivated and put in the hiring hall than is normal, that they're just not needed right now. And to me, that points to almost a decline in human population. And I'm also reading the punishment of Street for cloning himself rather than getting married and creating children in this light, seeing this as a punishment for uh, exacerbating what might actually be a, a population problem, that the, the population of humans is dwindling and that they are something actually of like kept animals, animals being kept in a zoo to some extent. Right, because the implication is that Street would have kept his income had he married and had a child in the normal way, <laughs> which would have, uh, I don't know, expanded the gene pool in some regard. That's a really interesting reading. I guess it's really hard to break down exactly what's going on here because you have this situation where you can go to sleep and not have to worry about making money, or you can engage in toil and labor for some reason to make uh, this paltry amount where like eight credits a month, which is a weird, I mean, 
eight credits is a is a, is an odd number to use. Like whatever it is, if it was like eight dollars a month, we'd think like, oh, that's really cheap, and it is cheap, but it's also like a better situation than he has. Yeah, it's very confusing. I don't know what's going on with the human population. I don't know why the cities would be so crowded and why people would be competing so much for work when all their needs could be met. Like, why would robots compete at all for work if they could just deactivate and ignore time? What is it about experiencing the passage of time that robots need in the same way that, say, a human being might need? This is this is always puzzling for me in Wolf that robots have the same exact same conscious needs that humans have. Yeah. And I have some questions about that. Once we get into looking at the robot society rather than the human society, I just want to wrap up sort of the, the, the this real question that I posed to you, which is what are people doing with their time and their money uh, to say that there are two things that we actually do see them doing. One is getting married and having children, having a, a family life. And the other thing is drugs that, Perhaps, you know, they don't maybe have a lot of interest in doing things because they are being uh, uh, pharmaceutically treated by biomechanics such as Westing. Well, this is why I think I don't quite trust Westing's explanation about the world. And I think we are purposefully given a limited view of the world through Westing, who sees everything through the lens of a person who has been programmed to see the world and understand the world a certain way. This is really no different than like Marx's view of the proletariat, that like once the proletariat really understand the conditions they're in and break free of the capitalist ideology, they'll be able to rise up and take control of of the means of production and own the means of production and the whole world will be better. Um, it's a dubious claim. But I think in this case, in the same way, I'd like to kind of do a bit of a Marxist reading on Westing himself, which is that he doesn't understand the human world at all beyond what he's been told. It's part of the reason why I really like to imagine in this story that in, in a different story in this universe that's not March B Street and Westing, that somebody has pulled something terrible from the space between the galaxies and has done some great harm to the world. Yes, and I do think that is sort of leading into the plot of the the sequel to this story. I've got, just got one more thing on this sort of question of what is it that people are up to, and it's it's maybe ancillary, but but now that you, you've invoked Marx, Brandon, I think we should also then talk about uh, the opiate of the masses, which is to say television. Who is the Tri-D programming for in this world? It, it seems normal that Street wants a television, so is... The television programming, the Tri-D programming for humans? Or is it for robots? Is it supposed to be for both of them? Are there two different sort of television worlds? One for humans, one for robots? And maybe the, 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 the other question that I would have about this is, are humans making some of the programming or all of the programming, or at least the programming that's meant for humans, if we think any of it is? I think we can say for sure that the humans are creating the programming. And this is found towards the end of the story where Westing is trying to piece together what Street is telling him. And he asks if the National Broadcasting Authority itself is employing slave labor. And I take this to mean that in Westing's mind, it's unimaginable that robots would be enslaving other robots. And so I really think that the humans are producing the entertainment through the Tri-D. But I also want to say about the Tri-D, when Street calls up the shop where the Tri-D is on display, he's given a selection of programs that he 
might want to access as an example, and they're all running at the same time. Now, this could be something like channels, which I, th- I think is probably what Wolf has in mind. Like these are the things that you can access right now. But I really, in our day and kind of reading this backwards, would like to think of this more as uh, like tabs you could pull up on an internet browser. For me, the Tri-D is, is really like a three-dimensional access experience that isn't limited to channels in terms of programming. You can access anything at any time. The Answer Man really acts like Ask Jeeves, the old search engine used to act. I know. I thought of that as well. And of course, this story <laughs> predates that. But uh, it really has. Yeah, whatever happened to Ask Jeeves? I think it's probably still around, though I have not gone looking for it in a long time. Well, that might be what I do with my with my evening. Uh, it's certainly what I would do if I had a uh, an ample universal income. I would spend all my day on Ask Jeeves. Well, my, uh, my second question about... How this society functions, Brandon, is where does the money for the universal human income come from? The advantage of using robots is that they don't require pay, and that would mean that a human could receive his or her normal compensation, but without having to do the work because a robot is doing it instead. But if the robots are paid and treated like people and in fact are even competing in what seems to be an economy of scarcity, then this isn't really the case. So where is the money coming from? Well, I think like our current global capitalist system, um, this notion of scarcity could go away any moment. There's no reason why I think the government in this story or whomever, maybe even the robot authorities would could strike a political deal to deactivate as many robots as they wanted to at any given time. There's something beneficial about the nature of competition that keeps wages low for the robots. So we, the only wage we see in this story is that it would cost Westing eight credits a month to stay at Street's apartment. And this apartment is in, as we've said many times, an expanded coat closet. That's a very low amount. We have no idea how much income the humans are receiving who are collecting that. But I think if you even take into account what was going on in the late 60s and early 70s um, with Wolf maybe seeing what could be accomplished with engineering ahead of the public, but definitely seeing what's going on in our day is that productivity goes way on the rise and the people who are responsible for generating the productivity, don't really see uh, an increase in wages. And I could easily see something like that being the case in this story as well, that there's no need for inflation because money could be very stable. Productivity, Productivity is very high. People's needs are met. And you can keep wages low by keeping competition high in the marketplace for those jobs. And one of the ways they keep wages low is not by just having competition between the robots, but they have a whole class of humans who also need to compete for this work. Yeah, I guess my question really maybe is is this, coming at it from a different way, is that if these robots exist because there was generations ago this rallying cry for free markets and free robots, that there was this sense that robots could be doing the jobs or most of the jobs that humans do and that humans don't need to work for a living anymore because we'll just have machines do it. How did we get from that to uh, a place where 
the robots are not machines, but the robots are people. And we do get something here. There's a Civil Liberties Act that Westing mentions that seems to be the law that dictates that robots are people, that robots are citizens, just like humans, whether they're classed or declassed. But I guess what where I'm struggling here, and maybe it's not really struggling. I'm just trying to stir up fodder for a discussion. But you know, <laughs> where I would throw a wrench in the understanding of this is that having a human society with not just a basic universal basic income, but a universal ample income. In fact, rich, the word rich is used here, a universal wealthy income is only possible if labor isn't being paid for. And maybe that existed for a little while, but after robots are recognized as having outgrown or exceeded their programming and and becoming individual persons, now they are working for a living because it turns out that because they're people, they have wants and desires that exceed simply being stored in a big warehouse when they aren't actually on duty and that they want to buy tickets for the monorail rather than walk. And they'd like to read the newspaper, which costs money. And they'd like to live in a bigger apartment rather than a small apartment. All of these are things we see Westing wanting, that because robots want those things, they now become inserted into a moneyed economy into into a, a labor market. And so I guess just to boil it down is that if the robots are created to to remove the need for a labor market and really for a, an economy of scarcity, once we recognize that the robots are actually people, there is there is going to be scarcity now that they are competing for individual needs and individual wants. How is it that the humans are able to maintain this universal rich income? I mean, that, that question seems so odd to me because that's the exact world we live in today where we have uh, a massive labor market competing for scraps of the economy where the you know top 14 richest people in the world earned 50% of the total money in the world or, or something like that. It's extreme, the difference between people who have capital and people who don't. And if you're talking about capitalism and you're talking about a capitalist market, the people who own the capital increase their capital, while the people who own production increase efficiency. And that's just kind of the way it is. They fight over the scraps while the people who own the capital continue to increase their share. This was this was the feature of kind of the, the much debated over work capital in the 21st century by Thomas Piketty, which he went back even and read like Victorian novels. He read like Jane Austen and said like, this is how society is presented. And it looks like even given in a Jane Austen novel, the amount of capital that the wealthy own, that has increased in an in, in unimaginable amount. And that even unless you're a Rockefeller or uh, you know another handful of very uh, fortunate families, most families who become wealthy off of capital entirely lose their capital within three generations. Capitalism requires competition, and it requires competition at the lowest level, not really at the highest level. And you see that in the gap between, for instance, if you want to talk about entertainment, how there used to be many, many, many different organizations competing for eyeballs in the entertainment market. And now in terms of television, there's about six. 
And so what we see here is another example of really capital consolidating and increasing on its own terms. And meanwhile, everybody else is kept in a state of debt and competition. I think that this actually used to be a kind of conservative ideal that people didn't live in debt, that people didn't have to compete for their jobs in the marketplace, that we could create a a, a world that was sustainable to live in for all. And I think that this is the kind of conservatism that Wolf is writing from, though it strikes us as almost socialist at this point in our history. Yeah, so you, you've really brought us into the question that I ultimately wanted to get at in this section, which is, why do the robots put up with this? If, if, we are, if this is a world in which all humans are what we would now call the 1%, that they are perhaps not even necessarily receiving a universal ample income as a government subsidy, but are really sharing in the profits of the one corporation that owns everything on the planet or everything in this nation, I guess, because we know that this is a nation. Why are the robots putting up with this? And so really, maybe in some way, my question is, even though we know that there is a Civil Liberties Act that dictates that robots are treated like people, that they are autonomous units in the labor market and can own property and can hold positions of authority in the government and in the military, are they enfranchised? Do they have a say in the government? Do they get to vote? Or are they, in fact, in some way, slaves of human society, even though they are given uh, some rights? Slaves in the sense that perhaps the well-educated Greek slaves who ran the Roman, the late Roman Republic and the early Roman Empire were slaves, despite being well-educated and having lots of privileges. Is that what this society is? I think that's exactly what this society is. And I think knowing Wolf as a lover of kind of the, the uh, Roman antiquity is, is drawing on that very heavily. And I really think that by creating competition, by creating certain characters, or or kind of rings on the merry-go-round for these people to compete for. They're distracting them from the fact that they're playing an entirely different game than the elite of society are playing. And by keeping them distracted with that game for competing over wages, for keeping them concerned about the needs of the humans, the, 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 the unwell. And, it, and it's indicated, I think, in this story that Westing really cares not for the classed humans. He's really a biomechanic for declassed humans, and part of his wage is taking care of them. So even in this nightmare dystopia that we're describing, where horrible creatures from outer space are pulled into Earth <laughs> to destroy the environment, there's still universal basic income on some level, or, or guaranteed uh, health care, that there's just distraction about re- the real way that society functions. And I think this is almost a prescient story in terms of the way uh, that global capitalism has gone, in terms of keeping the average citizen unaware of the amount of wealth that the wealthy have, the amount of problems that that wealth could solve, and, and removing any ethical conversation away from virtues and keeping it focused on other things, uh, that we don't even talk about greed as a problem in our society anymore. Something like that is going on in this story. Yeah, I'm really interested in this relationship between greed and slavery, which seems to be the reality of all of the robots here, even though this is a story about how some robots are being perhaps doubly 
enslaved, and that this is something that really horrifies Westing. And I want to think about what it is that is at the root of the horror that Westing feels when he discovers that robots who've been deactivated because their labor is not needed right now are being kidnapped and used as slaves. What is it about that that really bothers Westing, that horrifies Westing? Well, at a first pass, their speech has been taken from them. Their voice has been taken away. And and as you mentioned, that since there has been a Civil Liberties Act passed, and robots do have rights in this society, though nobody has duties towards the robots. And I, and I think we've, you and I have talked about in the past, the difference between duty and rights, that though these robots have rights, there is still room for massive abuse to take place. And and we'd be remiss to not even bring up the civil rights movement of this of, of the 1950s and 1960s. That is clearly on Wolf's mind as he's writing the story. It's on his mind in almost all of his early fiction, as we've brought up before. And I think the horror in Westing's mind, to sum it up, is that their speech has been removed from them, and they have been viewed entirely in terms of their labor potential and not in terms of their existential being. And I think that is the horror, the two horrors that Westing encounters as Street describes the solution to this mystery to him. So I think it would be actually productive to read the passage in which Westing feels this horror. And so, so I'll, just, I'll just read it here. So West, Westing narrates that the thought of an illicit factory perhaps in a cavern or abandoned mine, filled with dim figures laboring without cease under the threat of destruction, had already come to haunt my imagination. And so, for one thing, it's not at all about the idea of working for free, working without compensation. It's not about working to benefit someone else. That is not what horrifies him. And perhaps because deeply rooted in his programming as a robot is that, of course, that's what robots do. But it's about the conditions, right? He imagines that it is dark and he imagines that the slaves are not permitted time for rest or leisure. And I I think that this having time for rest and leisure, right, is a big part of what makes us people. And it's what makes the robots people as well, is having wants and desires and dreams beyond labor. Right. Free action. The leisure arts are really set up against like the servile arts in in what you'd call like Thomistic philosophy. The leisure arts have become what we call the liberal arts today, like the enjoyment of culture and cultural production. And in the 19th century, you have people like Matthew Arnold, who created basically English departments out of whole cloth, because there, he, he, he kind of decided that there ought to be people who celebrate and pass on the cultural achievements and the love of cultural achievement uh, onto people beyond themselves, and to understand them, to be kind of the record keepers. Neil Stevenson does a great bit of this in Anathem, where in his his version of a monastery, which is without religion, there are different classes of people that are classed in terms of the amount of time 
they stay within and absorb the cultural history of the past. And there's even a subset of these people whose job it is to simply know every idea that has happened up until that point. So that if somebody comes up with a new idea, they have to run it past these guys first to see if it's actually new or not. I think that leisure is something that makes us human. I I questioned earlier why these robots have the same conscious needs as humans. And I think that Wolf is trying to make strange the human experience through his robots. And I think that's part of what's going on here is that we're supposed to relate to Westing as the main voice of this story, as human beings, to not think about what it would be like to be the elite of society, but to imagine the cost of being the elite of society. And we get that through Westing's horror of the slaves of silver. When I was talking about having their speech taken away, I was talking about uh, the robots being kidnapped and turned into consumer goods, and they weren't, weren't even able to yell, help. Instead, they desperately and futilely shift color hues on whatever technology they're a part of. Right. And that existence fills them with dread, right? Those are the only two words that we hear the slaves of silver speak in this story are help and dread. There's one more thing I want to sort of deconstruct about this passage or unpack in this passage, which is that Westing refers to the threat of permanent destruction as being something that horrifies him. So it's not just the the robots are being dehumanized or having their personhood taken from them, maybe is the better way to say that, but that they, they can actually die under these conditions. My, my intention had been to bring up those two facts, this robbing of personhood and also this fear of, of death, which seemingly is something that robots don't necessarily face, or at least is something that they face in the distant future. I wanted that to actually lead us into talking about robotness. But you brought up something earlier, Brandon, that I think belongs here in this section about slavery that I want to push back on. When I was asking you about the TV, you said that Westing can't believe that the National Broadcasting Company would be enslaving robots, right? Uh, And so your assumption was that it was run by people rather than robots. But I actually wonder if that's necessarily true. And I don't want to talk about the TV company. What I want to talk about is who is it that's actually committing the crime? Who are the people who are kidnapping these turned off robots, these dormant robots? Who are the enslavers? Are these humans, are they declassed humans, which might be the, the sort of obvious answer. But is it also possible that they are other robots who are greedy, who are trying to get ahead. People like Westing who can't afford a nice apartment, a big apartment on their own, that if they want a big apartment, they have to have a roommate. Is it not possible that some robots who are not doing well in this competitive economy, this capitalistic economy, are resorting to enslaving their own kind so that they can have what humans have, which is abundance and wealth? Yeah, I suspect this question is kind of derived from the fact that um, the only kind of humans we get in the story are qualified in some manner. They're declassed humans. We don't meet any real humans. That persons are, in Westing's view, eminently robots, and that the people committing these acts are not given any human descriptor at all. They are thieves and criminals which leaves it very ambiguous. To that end, I don't know how to answer 
the question. Right. This is a question that I don't think can actually be answered. This is tantamount to the question of, did Lady Macbeth have a miscarriage before the action of Macbeth begins? Or right. Something right, like right, that. Right. Um, but I will say that, at least in Westing's mind, who is the narrator of the story uh, and whose mind narrates the story, that it is inhuman. It is uh, uh, unconscionable. And that the activity is that which something even a D-class human would not engage in. This is a lower category of human beings. And it seems to me as though in this story that D-class humans are even lower than robots. They're regarded lower than robots in this world. So I don't know how to answer that question. I really don't. I think that it would follow the logic of competitive capitalist system that any advantage is worth having. It's worth seeking. And so you'd have to ask who would be most advantaged by the, I'll say cannibalization, though that maybe plays my hand a little bit, of these robots into consumer goods. The people who would be most advantaged by it are not people who are already benefiting by society. It would be those who are not benefiting as much as they want. And so it's entirely within the logic of the story and within the logic of the economy of the story for it to be robots. Yeah, you raised some really good points there. I do think that the obvious rabbit trail here is that the declassed humans are the perpetrators because these are the sort of scum and villainy who appear most prominently in the story. But there is a line that we get that is really almost kind of a throwaway line where we are told that there was at some point not a hiring hall or that there was not a policy or procedure for robots whose labor was no longer needed to turn themselves in for deactivation. There was a period when robots did not do that and robots could find themselves out of work in just the same way that humans could and that those robots who found themselves out of work resorted to criminal activities. They became the worst sorts of people that were out there. And so this requirement that robots whose labor is no longer needed, or perhaps we might say robots who can no longer make a living, people who've lost their job or can't manage their business properly are legally obligated to turn themselves in for deactivation. And I want to draw a parallel between that experience and the declassed human experience. A declassed human, we are told that declassed humans, though we later learn that street is an exception to this, we are told that declassed humans are humans who have refused to turn themselves in to be killed at the mandatory death age people who have said, yeah, I I don't want to die. I want to keep living, even if I'm going to have to live in poverty or live like a criminal. Is it not possible, though Wolf does not say that such a thing is going on, that there are robots who are saying the same thing? Robots who are saying, well, I've lost my job, my labor's not needed anymore, I'm supposed to go turn myself in to be deactivated, but I choose not to. I don't want to be dead. I don't want to be turned off. And, And I want to bring that back to Westing's real horror at the idea of robots being permanently destroyed, right? Westing himself seems to be troubled by the, this notion of death. So I, I actually kind of think that Wolf really is hinting here and obscuring the fact that perhaps it is robots who have decided not to turn themselves in for deactivation who are responsible for this in the first place. That, in fact, some of them may even be the, the criminals who are hiding in the hiring hall at night are robots, I think that's a beautiful parallel. 
uh, you've drawn. And I think it's entirely possible that Commissioner Electric would miss the fact that there's extra robots in the hiring hall hiding around the space expanders. And maybe they're activated. We don't know if his staff is human or robot, though I suspect they're robot. The notion here of like permanent death is really also a part of the a part of the story that you brought up in that question as well. And I think that it is any conscious being's fear, perhaps, that they will die unnaturally. And I think what we're told about this world is that no being needs to die unnaturally, that the only way you would die is the result of policy. And there are people at all levels of society that are willing to brush against the policy and deal with the consequences. I think if it is robots who are doing this, it is a genuine horror and tragedy because they are destroying others of their own type of being in order to gain money, perhaps days, perhaps something like that. And that Westing's imagination that these slaveholders would destroy, which does turn out to be true. These beings are destroyed in the minds of the people who are selling them for the goods, but in the consciousness of the beings who are being destroyed, they are still living a permanently enslaved life, unable to communicate, unable to have needs, explore their needs, explore leisure. Westing's wonderfully pulpy visions of the kind of conditions that these slaves of silver are living in are actually the case when they are encased in a tri-D and their coding is messed up and their wiring is wrong. We're, we're, we're told of the horror early on in this story because it is the actual horror that the cannibalized creatures are dealing with. So I, I am okay with a reading of this story where robots themselves are perpetrating the crime, but that would speak to a different kind of politic than we, we've seen Wolf really express in the past. I mean, as a person who is exploring conservatism, as Wolf is in this time, this reads as like extraordinarily leftist, even for the time when it was written. Well, certainly the, the whole metaphor of slavery here is being used to show that anyone who has to work for a living is in some way servile and so is is in some way a slave though we also know from having read operation Ares and other wolf stories that wolf does think that people having a purpose having a station in life is a big part of what gives life meaning and gives life value that that having neither of those things being robbed of those things is a real evil and is a, a sort of overturning of god's plan and, and i think we might even think about that when we move into maybe actually talking about the nature of robotness or robotness in this story. It seems to me that one of the things that's going on in this story is that we get a parallel experience of humans and robots whose personhood is being taken from them. And that this happens with the robots who are being turned into TVs it also does happen, I think, with the robots who are being deactivated, but the real parallel perhaps might be with humans who are being declassed, that these are people who are losing their, their voice or their speech, uh, but people who are losing their their free will, right? These are people who are losing their ability to act 
freely, which we might say is, in fact, like literally what being a slave means is that you are not in control of yourself. And I want to bring this back to the question of religion that I think actually gets raised, perhaps not raised, but alluded to, hinted at in this story in two ways. And and the first is when Westing says, I'm not a religious man. But when I contemplate the ingenuity of those early programmers and systems analysts, and then trails off and has this religious ecstasy that we brought up during the recap, uh, my question is this, is, are some robots religious? Or are religious men, the religious men that Westing refers to, are they humans? My reading is that Westing sees all people above his class as equivalent of humankind, that there is some kind of conscious fraternity that unites all people with minds. And this is something we've seen in wolf stories a lot. And that having a mind, having a consciousness is something that is a requirement of free will. I think in Westing's take of society, declassed humans are the lowest form. They've basically chosen to be slaves. And as you brought up religion, and as we know, Wolf is Catholic, and we've talked about Thomism before, I do want to briefly state that um, Aristotle, who was the philosopher that Thomas kind of rescued for Christianity, did believe that there were, in fact, people who were naturally slaves and people who were naturally free. And it's it's kind of a disturbing thought, but what he meant by that, and I think, Glenn, you, you kind of hinted at this in your question, is that there are people who are unable to take control of themselves and their own lives, and that they actually benefit from other people creating conditions and limits around their being, because otherwise they would just be wild. So your real options in Aristotle's humanity is to be an animal, to be a slave, or to be free. And to be a slave would be preferable to being an animal. So I think that's what's going on here, is that even being a slave in this classical sense, in which perhaps D-classed humans are, who are choosing to embrace the limits around their being, is preferable to being an animal, which is what Westing describes when he describes the conditions of the robot's labor. It's also describing the conditions of the robots who are kidnapped and turned into TVs or whatever kind of consumer good, that not only do they have no control over their lives, but they have no ability to realize their passions, their desires in a meaningful way. That even to be a slave of silver, as Weston describes, would be preferable to being a consumer good. And I think that's part of the real horror of this story. Well, Brandon, that really reminds me of the conversation that we had when we were talking about how the whip came back, which is the last story where Wolf really dealt with slavery as a, as a topic. And I pointed out that in the ancient world, slaves were regarded as tools that speak. And it is the speaking there, right, that still separates them from animals, that makes them better than animals in this Aristotelian and later Thomist uh, view. And we are seeing here that there is a real emphasis made. The whole mystery revolves around speaking, the ability to communicate, and that the robots have had that taken from them 
at least in some way, though they're able to continue to assert their personhood and that what it really, all that is missing is someone as smart and clever as Street to be able to hear them, to notice that they're speaking. The one thing that didn't occur to me till you were bringing this up, Brandon, is that it's not just that it takes someone as clever as Street because Street can't see that they're speaking. He needs another robot. He needs a robot to see those patterns for him. The robots can see the language, but they can't understand it. Street, the human, the very clever human, can't see the language, but he can understand it. They are There's a symbiosis here that I hadn't noticed before. I don't know what that means because I've had all of about 10 seconds to, right. to wrestle with it, yeah. uh, but there's something going on there. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and there is Catholic language at the end of this story where Westing is celebrating Street's ability to bring justice to the situation, but also glory, which is like kind of the weight of being, the celebration of the weight of being to this situation. And those are, they're Christian terms, but they are specifically, I think Wolf is using them in in a Catholic way to talk about redemption, that the resolution of this situation will rescue those who have been enslaved, whose even basic right of speech has been taken away from them, from that situation into glory, back into the weight of being. And I think that is really tied up in what's going on in this story here. And part of Westing's celebration in his association with street, the declassed human, which is like saying, a human who has lost their station or chosen to give up their station to give life to another. And that reminds me of something. I just can't think of what it is. <laughs> well, maybe our, our listeners can help us out with that. I, I want to move this. I want to stay on the topic of religion, but, but moving to another observation. It's been perhaps 10 episodes or more, Brandon, since I have come out of left field with the question of, is someone Christ? I'm not going to... <laughs> I'm not going to do that here, but I have an observation that might actually be similarly insane. I'm looking forward to being able to ask that question again. But here's something that I noticed, and I'll I'll put it here as a question, Brandon. The question is this. Is it significant that Westing, at the start of the story, leaves the monorail at the stop that's labeled Cathedral, and then proceeds to a building that is described as blackened? Uh, And here's the observation that I had, the the reading that I had that is probably completely crazy. But as I was reading that sentence in the story, I imagined Cologne Cathedral, which was blackened as a result of the Industrial Revolution, which is the process by which high modernity was invented at the expense of essentially enslaving all of us in the form of labor. Yeah, I don't think it's that crazy. And I I will add to the horror of that by saying that that cathedral has been turned into an apartment building that by the standards of the city is small, though by the standards of the city we live in wouldn't be small at all. 27 stories is not a small building. I think it is significant that the cathedral stop is the one that Weston gets off at, though I don't know if he ends up at Cologne. But I will say that whatever that stop is named for is no longer meaningful in the society that Westing lives in. Yeah, and I have to read this as being significant here, that Wolf is pointing to a real absence of a religious morality that centers around the value of all people because of their personhood and because of their 
soul, not because of the labor that they do, and that we are being shown here a slave society, but not only a slave society, we're being shown here a slave society in which the slave owners are told to kill themselves when they reach a certain age so that younger people can continue to enjoy material wealth that these things are absolutely horrifying and especially thinking about sort of about a catholic stance to towards suicide and towards slavery that there doesn't seem to be any room here for god right because the gods that we see evoked in this story are men who programmed the robots Street himself doesn't have any real sense of religion, only seems to condescend to Westing's view about who the gods are. But I will say, I think that Street himself is a kind of the absent-minded Christ figure in this story. And increasingly, we're seeing in Wolf, in the evolution of his robots, that they are capable of greater humanity and a greater understanding of what it means to be a being, what being is at its essence, than many humans are capable of understanding. Well, that leads perfectly into the last question that I have before we move into talking about craft. You've pointed out throughout the story, Brandon, that we are being told this from Westing's point of view, that this is a story that is being narrated to us by a robot. And so we are seeing the world the way a robot sees the world. At the very end, we, we get this line where Street compares Westing to a refrigerator. I'm not quite sure I understand what's going on there. So some of the questions that I have for you, Brandon, is, is, is it possible that these robots are not actually as similar to people as Westing thinks they are, that they only seem to be people, to be persons, because we are accessing the world through a robot's narrative, that for Westing and for all other people, these are just machines. These are tools that speak, that the people know that these are slaves, that they are completely aware that these are machines that that work for them, that they don't even maybe know that Street maybe doesn't know that Westing thinks he's a person. I don't know about the the last part of your question, but I will say this, that Street is extraordinarily dismissive of Westing as he asks questions, as he describes as his experience to Street, and that Street only recognizes Westing in terms of his utility to Street's investigation. This is really no different from Watson and Sherlock Holmes. But in this story, the way the differences are described, and and especially given the last line of the story where Westing is uh, no more in the way than a refrigerator, it's really puzzling. I do think that the only people in this society that would have real empathy with a robot would be the D-classed humans. But I also think the gap maybe that we're shown between a D-classed human and a robot, if we're kind of going along with this reading where perhaps Street is another one of Wolf's savior figures, is the distance between Christ and man, or a divinity in man. And I think that that's explicitly drawn in this story, that to Westing, there are men, humans, who are divinities. And um, that even though D-class humans are beneath robots in some way, 
that perhaps Westing's work as a biomechanic, as in my reading is to D-class humans, is as of a man tending to the wounds of a god in some way. Well, here's here's maybe where I'm going to do it, Brandon, and, and just off the cuff, wonder if perhaps Westing himself isn't actually something of a of a Christ figure that he is a, a slave in this slave society, but his function, his purpose, is to minister to the needs of humans, but not just humans, but to poor humans who have been disenfranchised and are struggling economically. That he is a a minister to the the poor and a healer. I'd like to think of him more as like a Peter figure or a John figure or something like that. I think I think Street is the explicit savior figure, the heroic figure of this story, and that um, maybe even a, a Matthew type figure. That that the chronicler is not the hero, and I think that that logic is at play in this story. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good rationale for how to read that. That that the narrator cannot be the Christ figure in the story that would really be breaking all of the rules of storytelling that Wolf is so uh, imbued with and, and so cognizant of. Right. But he'll get there. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. You're right. He will. You're right. He will get there. Uh, So that really completes all the questions that I had for this world. And what's really great is that uh, we know that there's a sequel to this story and that uh, hopefully if our, our patrons are kind enough to us, we'll get to cover that story as well and maybe test some of the conclusions that we've drawn here against more evidence, which which really uh, gets my historian's gears going. Yeah, I'm really excited. As I said, the only thing I know about the next story is that it jokingly begins with, it was a dark and stormy night. Well, let's let's round off this discussion then by just zooming out and talking a little bit about the craft of this story. I have one question that is the broadest possible question that could be asked about this or any story, and then one very specific question about the craft. But I think I'll start with the broad question, uh, which is simply this, Brandon. And uh, Does this story work for you? No, oh, the classic Brandon question of yeah, the Gene Wolf <laughs> Literary Podcast. I've stolen your question from you. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. This was this was uh in terms of pure pleasure. This is one of my favorite stories. And and the reason why, which I suppose is implied by the question itself, is that it is comfort food. This is Wolf writing a cozy detective story for a cup of tea and a rainy Sunday afternoon, and it is just beautifully done. All the complexity that we've covered in this story, all of the things he brings up, don't need to be engaged with in order to enjoy the pure mechanics of the story. And that is a reason why I love it. It's familiar, it's comfortable, it's well-written, there's real beauty here, and he's pulling from both the detective genre and weird fiction, and it's just a joy to read comfort food is exactly right. I hadn't thought of that, but that is exactly what this story is. Uh, To me, this really ranks up here with Trip Trap as being a story that is, as you say, comfort food. That's a story that I just want to read when I've got a a free afternoon because, I don't know, it's a snow day and school is closed or or there's a Super Bowl parade and no one can go to work (laughs) as we recently (laughs) experienced. And I really loved it on that note. Uh, Here's my specific question for you, Brandon. And this is thinking about what Wolf has done with the Sherlock Holmes story, the Sherlock Holmes oeuvre, where he has kept so much of who Holmes is in straight and so much of who Westing is in Watson. 
But there's one difference between Westing and Watson that really jumped out at me, and I want to know what you make of this. In a Sherlock Holmes story, and in fact, this is really like the second thing we learn about Watson. It's like in the third sentence of A Study in Scarlet, Dr. Watson is a disabled veteran of the Afghan war and is traumatized for it. Doyle doesn't put this label on it. The Watson that we meet at the beginning of that story is someone who is spending all of his money on booze and perhaps other substances because he is finding it very difficult to re-enter civil society after being exposed to the horrors of of warfare in Afghanistan. Wolf, who in the story we most recently covered, Blue Mouse, writes quite a bit, I think, about his own experiences in combat, in industrialized combat in the Korean War. Here in this story, though, he, he chooses to not have Watson be a veteran. He doesn't give Watson this past, right? Westing doesn't share this with his uh, with his literary model. Why do you think that is? Primarily, I think it's because this is a story that is pastiche. It, it's really an abstract of the home story rather than a specific homage to Holmes. It's not going back and looking at who Watson is and who Holmes is. It's looking at the tropes of the genre, and it's specifically looking at the tropes of a Arthur Conan Doyle home story. That's the number one reason why I think we don't see Westing with the same history as Watson. It just wouldn't suit the nature of pastiche. If you wanted to say that there's some allegorical correlation between Watson and Westing and Holmes and Stream, I would point you to the section of the story where you go in depth about Street's own addiction issues, his own need for drugs to function. Wolf is explicitly taking this part of the Holmes canon and taking it out of the story. Though we never see Street eat or sleep in this story, which I think might be what Westing recognizes as being real problems of Street's physical being. We don't get the same past in Westing. So I think I think Wolf explicitly deals with this sort of question in the story itself. Yeah, that's a great observation that just simply had not occurred to me that Wolf also removes the flaw from the Holmes character in order to kind of embrace really the more fun aspects of this pastiche, even while telling us a story about a slave society that is full of moral bankruptcy. <laughs> Classic Wolf, I'll say. <laughs> Classic Wolf, indeed. <laughs> Well, I think with that observed, uh, that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know who you think is responsible for kidnapping the robots out of the hiring hall. Are these other robots or are these declassed humans or perhaps something else entirely? Yes, and I'd just like to remind our listeners that you should absolutely pick up a copy of The Quality of Mercy by G.L. McDorman. You will not be disappointed. It's a true pleasure. Next time, we'll be covering the story The Toy Theater, which you can find in the collection The Island of Dr. Death and Other Stories and Other Stories. Until then, we greet you and say farewell.